Let us pray. I'm also eternal and everlasting, Father. We are thankful this morning for your love and your mercy. Thankful for you, the privilege that is ours to assemble, to worship you in obedience to your command that we should do so. We are thankful that you continue to be gracious to us, sustaining, protecting, and preserving us in various situations of this life. We know that we are in a tumultuous time, but we also know that underneath are the everlasting and the for which we are confident in you because of your goodness and because of your power, because of your love. We know that you care. We know that you love us beyond anything that we can imagine. So, Father, as we have gathered this morning to study a portion of your word, it is a request that God the Holy Spirit, the perfect communicator, will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this morning. This is a request in Christ's name. We are really still in the section of First Corinthians 12, verses 20 through 26. I read through it. We have been going through it. It says, and it, as it is, there are many parts. But one body, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that each parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, Every part rejoices with it. Now recall them that we ended our last study last week with our consideration of the doctrine of suffering. Now we have embarked on this doctrine because we stated that the, that the understanding of suffering is important in answering the question of how a believer should suffer together with another believer or how to share in a fellow believer's suffering. Now, as we promised, of course, in our last study, we'll begin our study this morning with looking at the effects of suffering. That's what we pick up. Effects of suffering. Now, our concern with the effects of suffering for this study is not so much as how it affects a person in a physical sense, but the impact suffering has on a person in a spiritual sense. In other words, that physical suffering is not really our concern here. 
with the spiritual aspect. To this effect, then, there are two effects sufferings would have on a person. Suffering may lead to the hardness of the heart in the sense that a person becomes stubborn and unwilling to respond to anything spiritual. We mean that the person suffering ignores God and rejects anything that is spiritual. Now the individual impacted that way will not listen to any instruction or information that will cause a person to reflect as to the source of the individual's suffering. Now this kind of hardness of heart was demonstrated or typified severally by Pharaoh of Egypt in the time of Exodus. Now after the plague of uh, flies that uh, caused suffering in, uh, to the Egyptians, we are informed that this suffering did not cause Pharaoh to listen to the demand of the Lord through Moses to release Israel. Instead, he hardened his heart. That is, he became more stubborn as we read in Exodus chapter 8 verse 32. Exodus chapter 8 verse 32. Hold on, Exodus. It reads, Exodus chapter 8, verse 32 reads, By this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Now, the same effect of hardening the heart or stubbornness due to suffering was also reported after the plague of hell. As we can gather from still in Exodus chapter 9, verses 34 and 35. Exodus chapter 9, verses 34 and 35. It reads, When Pharaoh so that the rain and hail and thunder has stopped. He sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Now the hardness of hearts due to suffering implies that those who harden their hearts during suffering will not come to repentance. Now this state of the soul is one that will characterize those in the future that will experience God's judgment as stated in Revelation chapter 9 verses 20 and 21.
Revelation chapter 9 verses 20 and 21. This is something in future. We don't know when that will take place, but whenever it takes place, uh, this is, will be the situation in the world at that time. Revelation 9 verse 20 reads, The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues, still they not repent of the work of their hands. That's stubbornness. That's hardness of heart. Now it says, They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or work. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their tests. So, in spite of suffering, people will not move. They will keep getting worse and worse in whatever the judgments and plagues that the Lord will bring at that time. Another effect of suffering that is contrary though to the hardness of heart is that of humbling of self in repentance. Humbling of self in repentance. In other words, suffering may lead to a positive attitude towards God that is evident in repentance. So we are saying that if a person is aware that the individual suffering is due to sin in a person's life, that such suffering may have the effect of causing repentance in that individual. And the best illustration of this positive effect of suffering on an individual spiritually is Manasseh, Manasseh. Now, king of Judah, Manasseh, the king of Judah. He rejected the God of his father, Hezekiah, and so became involved in idolatry together with his people. In other words, he was one of those children that think their parents don't know what they're saying or what they're doing. His father, Hezekiah, was a devoted believer. And so, to him, he didn't buy any of the things that his father believed in. But he came to power. So, as he came to power, the Lord sent prophets to warn him. And his people but he will not listen to God or to his word. Of course, at that time, so Israel. And so, what did God do? God sent him into exile. This is according to Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-three, verses ten and eleven. Second Chronicles, 
chapter 33, verses 10 and 11. And hold on to that. Second Chronicles, chapter 33, verses 10, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 reads, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So, the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze and bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Now, here was a, a most powerful person in the northern part of Israel, completely humiliated. In such a way that he was shackled, runs put in his nose, and pulling him, took him to that. That as as slowly as you can get as a human being from power to nothing. And that's what he said. Why? He wouldn't listen to the God of his father. Again, he is one, like I said, there are a lot of children. When I say children, I'm not talking about just. You know, teenagers, I'm talking about children, whether you're 50 or 60 years old. It doesn't matter. You still, as long as your father and mother is still alive, you are still a child to them. And so maybe they tell you something about spiritual things, you they don't know what they are talking about. And so this man was among those. Didn't think the father, you know, he was just, to him, his father was just out of it. Now, what should we this Yahweh? So, God sent him in exile. So in exile, he suffered greatly. And his suffering then had a positive effect of repentance. So that he sought now the Lord God of Israel. As we read in the next two verses, as it says in Chronicles chapter 33, verses 12 and 13. Now, that's one of those things that I will suppose every parent that is spiritually minded will not want the child to go through his or her experience of suffering to learn certain things. Unfortunately, most, parents, most children want to learn it the hard way. They want the pain that their parents went through. And parents try to Shield their children from those things by teaching them, uh, you know, being tough on them when they have to. But they just don't think the parents know what they're talking about. And so, they have to go through it the hard way. And that's the case that we're looking at here. He has to go it the hard way. Humble from power, royal power, to where he is on the ground. Because what we read, verse 2 says, in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God. Look at that word. And humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He rejected the God of his fathers. Now suffering brought that to him. Where he now humbled himself. Verse 13 reads, And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved with his entreaty 
and listen to his plea. That I tell you, I mean, God is so compassionate. He's so loving. He's not like a tyrant out there trying to, you know, use like a swamp, uh, fly swamp and swamp. No, he's not that. He wants, he wants, he wants to give us the best. As I think every parent wants to. But he has conditions we have to meet in order to receive his best. And so that is what here, as soon as this man came to his senses, God welcomed him right back. Took him. That's what we say. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Hard way. He learned in the hard way. It's better to learn in the easy way. In other words, this aside though, the fact is a suffering, either, I mean, sufferings have either a negative effect of hardening of the heart, that is being stubborn, as the sufferer does not show any concern for the individual's spiritual life. Or that suffering may have a positive effect of humbling self before the Lord that leads a person to repentance. So, those are the two things that I want to consider about the effects of suffering. And that brings me to the next thing that I want to consider, which is the inevitability of suffering of believers. The inevitability of suffering of believers. In other words, that suffering is inevitable. Now, when we indicated though, that suffering is universal because of the fall into sin. Now, this being the case, some would think that because of redemption from sin implies our salvation, that believers should not experience suffering. In fact, many believers express surprise if they suffer or if fellow believers are suffering. Now, such an expectation is really not rooted in the scripture. Now, the scripture is clear that suffering is inevitable for believers. Hence, believers should expect it. Again, not just here, but almost all over the places in the world today, but more so in this country, we don't want suffering. As a part of our faith, we just don't want it. We want comfort, which flies at the face of what the Bible tells us. Now, so, there are several reasons, though, that we know that uh, uh, suffering is inevitable for believers. First, the Lord Jesus foretold of the suffering of those who believe in him, as we read in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Matthew chapter 10, 
Matthew Matthew chapter 10 verse 22 and hold on to Matthew because the next passage will also be in Matthew. It is all men will hate you because of me. May he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now the hate of believers by unbelievers will result in suffering. You see, hate can be either passive, where a person despises you, but does nothing about it other than perhaps to avoid you. Or hate can be active, where a person who hates you goes a step further by acting in a manner that causes problems for you. Doesn't it is this active uh, hatred that will result in suffering and even death that the Lord Jesus predicted as a lot of believers as recorded in Matthew chapter 24 verse 9. Matthew 24, verse 9. Matthew 24, verse 9. Reads, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. That's what the Lord says. The Lord of the church tells us. This is going to be what we face as believers. Second, the Holy Spirit foretold the suffering of believers through the apostles. Those Apostle Paul conveyed to new converts during his first missionary journey that suffering is a necessary part of being a believer in Christ, as indicated or implied in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Acts. Chapter 14, verse 22. It reads, Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. So the apostle is being truthful. Unlike what some people uh, do today, 
that uh, all they present Christianity to new converts is it's a way to prosper. Materially, of course, they are talking, not spiritually, materially. In other words, they present Christianity as a way you're going to have a good life. Now, the Holy Spirit through the apostles says, no, that's false. The life of a Christian, if you actually live it, is one that will bring hardship. Now, hardship does not equal misery. I have to remember that. Hardship doesn't mean misery. In other words, in spite of that hardship, you have this inner peace with you that no unbeliever can even come close to having. Yet, the outside hardship will be there. But inwardly, you're protected. Now the apostle, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, states unequivocally that suffering is inevitable for believers who want to live righteously in Christ. Since such persons will be persecuted as in that statement in Second Timothy chapter three verse twelve. Second Timothy chapter three verse. 12. It is, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that's as clear as we can come. Very simple. Nothing to exigate. Very simple. We will be persecuted. That's, of course, if you want to live according to truth. If you don't, no one persecute you. Third, suffering is a prizing for being devoted to God, as that is what the Holy Spirit conveyed through Apostle Peter in First Peter chapter one, verses six and seven. First Peter chapter one. Verses 6 and 7. For Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It reads, for Peter 1, verse 6 reads, In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold with perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the apostle indicates that believers suffer since it is inevitable because of its effect 
on the believer. Now we'll say uh, more later on the benefits of suffering for believers. We'll talk about that later. Fourth, the experiences of believers in the past convey that suffering of believers is inevitable. And the suffering of the believers in the Old Testament time is summarized by the human author of Hebrews in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. But let's consider specifically Hebrews chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. He reads Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded his grace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. In this passage, of course, it is the suffering of Moses that was a concern. But we usually, we already, of course, stated, as we stated, this 11th chapter contains general examples of sufferings of the Old Testament believers. Now, it is not only, though, in the examples of the Old Testament believers that confirm the inevitability of suffering for believers. So does that of the New Testament believers. Now we see this, uh, for example, in the persecution of the apostles as in Acts chapter 5 verse 40. Acts Acts chapter 5 verse 40 Acts chapter 5 verse 40 reads His speech persuaded them they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Because you know this story. They never listened to them. They never obeyed them. And they keep hauling them into jail. Something that we have to be ready for if we're going to be true to our Savior. So flogging here though is a form of punishment that is intended to inflict pain or suffering on the receiver. Thus then the apostles were subjected to 
uh, suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So the point is that we should recognize that suffering is inevitable for believers. So the question is not whether we will suffer for that is a set of facts that we will suffer. But the problem is how we handle it. That's the issue. We will suffer. Unless you are full of compromises. And sometimes when I talk about suffering, some of you are looking for somebody, you know, from outside. Many times it starts in your house. That's where it begins. In other words, maybe a husband and wife, children and so on. And you hand them to the world and they say, no. What do you do? Bow down? Or kowtow as you say? And follow the, the, whatever it is. Or stand your ground and, and they hate you, despise you. If they exclude you, what do you do? That's suffering. But that's what the Bible says is inevitable. So the real issue is again, like I said, how we handle suffering. That being the case, that brings me then to the next consideration in our doctrine of suffering, which is right and wrong responses to suffering. Right and wrong responses to suffering. Now, there are two general ways a believer can respond to uh, suffering, rightly or wrongly. But we begin with the wrong way to respond to suffering. It will be wrong in suffering to speak evil words against God in the midst of your suffering or to show resentment towards God because of one's suffering. Now we derive this wrong response from the suggestion of Job's wife to him during his ordeal of sufferings tremendously as he went through the testing that was intense and he suffered intensely. And this is what the wife said to him, in Job chapter 2, verse 9. Job chapter 2, verse 9. Hold on to that. Job chapter 2 verse 9. It is, his wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Because God had died. I see there are those commentators who dispute what it is Job's wife said to him because of the word curse. Curse. 
Now it is, that word curse is really translated from a, a Hebrew word, Barak, Barak, which, you know, that it has uh, with a positive meaning of to, to commend, in the sense of speaking words involving or invoking divine favor on a person, or the word can mean to praise, to praise. Now, because of the positive meaning of the uh, Hebrew word, some commentators com- contend that its meaning here in Job 2 verse 9 should be to bless. <laughs> In other words, they say, he said, they were saying, bless God and die. That's, what they, that's how they explain it. Well, but such a meaning is refuted though by what Job answered the wife. Look at verse 10. Look at his answer in verse 10. Job chapter 2 verse 10. Verse 10 reads, He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God? And no trouble. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now see, why would Job respond the way he did if the wife had nudged him to do what is right by God? That is, if the wife had said, praise God. doesn't make sense that he would respond this way. Now, so it's inconceivable that Job then would have rebuked his wife for telling him to praise God in the midst of his suffering. Therefore, it is better to understand that what, his, what the wife said was for Job to do was something that was not good in others would not speak well of God. Furthermore, we know from the law that it is the cursing of God that, that, that draws the death penalty as later instructed Israel in Leviticus chapter 24 verses 15 and 16. Leviticus Leviticus uh, chapter 24 verses 15 and 16. It reads, Say to the Israelites, If anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. How? We're going to see. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him, whether an alien or a native born. When he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. So, based on the arguments that I have given you, or we have presented, and the fact that the meaning of a word is generally governed by the context. By the context. The Hebrew word Barak, that no doubt has an overwhelmingly uh, positive meaning, must have been used in a negative sense 
in the mouth of Job's wife. This being the case, it should uh, be accepted then that uh, Job's wife encouraged the husband to say something that will cause God to kill him. That is what will, have, will make more sense than to say she was nudging him to Prescott. Now that aside, it will be wrong for a believer who suffers to charge God of doing anything wrong or not of, or not, of not caring for the individual. Furthermore, it will be wrong to become disillusioned because of suffering. That, that's as to whether the person will question whether it is worth serving the Lord or living according to truth. If one suffers despite every effort to live for the Lord. Being disillusioned because of suffering will, have be, will be having an attitude similar to what the psalmist had when he observed this prosperity of the wicked. And apparently, non-prosperity as he sees it, of those who are righteous. And that got him almost disillusioned so that he posed that question in Psalm 73, verse 13. Psalm 73, verse 13. Psalm 73, verse 13. It reads, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Now it's not difficult for a person who suffers despite living according to the truth to become disillusioned but that does not have to be. It's not difficult, but it shouldn't be. Now, we should recognize that there is a difference in an honest recognition of a person's suffering for which the individual could not immediately uh, place the cause of the suffering from disillusionment in the sense of losing one's faith or trust in the Lord. We should know that sometimes some people can give an honest evaluation. That doesn't mean that they're losing faith. Now Joseph, to me, is an example of one that evaluated his suffering honestly without becoming disillusioned in, 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 in the, what he experienced. He suffered for living righteously when he rejected the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife, as recorded in Genesis chapter 39, verse 9.
turn to Genesis once you get it. I'm going to pick up one more passage here. Genesis chapter 39, verse 9. Now, this, you know the story very well. This is a situation where uh, God's plan was working out, of course. That uh, Joseph, being a handsome young man, the master's wife decided, You got to sleep with me. And uh, Joseph is saying, no, I can't do such a thing. This, look at his reasoned argument. This is what he says. He said, No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because it's the way he was arguing. He said, Yeah, I'm, I'm of high power in this house. I'm the chief administrator. There's no doubt about it. That you are the wife of my master, whom I have respect for. That's really what he's saying. That is, he's going, he's walking his way, which is where we can sometimes do. He's walking his way from the smaller reason to the higher one. And so that's why he says, except you, because you are his wife. Now then he goes to the higher. That is the more important reason for anything that we do on this planet. That the way we justify why we shouldn't do anything wrong has to do with whom we worship. And so that's why he said, more or less in a question form, rhetorical question. He said, how then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? See, that's the highest argument. He was concerned about God. We should be concerned about people, but ultimately it is God that's important, not humans. Because humans are not going to judge us. Uh, yeah, no, they, they talk bad about us now. Yeah, I understand. That's not judging, really. That's, they can't do anything. In, when it really counts, in the eternal state, no, no believer or unbeliever can do anything for you. You stand on your own before the Lord Jesus Christ. So here was his argument. He went from the uh, what I call the lower one to the higher one. Lower, I respect my master. I can't do anything like that. But here's the guy, higher reason God I worship, I can't sin against him. So you will think that a young man that behaved that way will have been applauded. It didn't happen that way. So Joseph was imprisoned. And so he suffered because he would not sin against God. He realized his suffering was not due to something he has done. But he did not seem to have been disillusioned. Although he he complained about his imprisonment when he requested the chief cupbearer of Pharaoh to mention him to Pharaoh after he interpreted his dreams according to Genesis chapter 40 verses 13 through 15. Genesis chapter 40, verses 13 through 15. It reads, Within three days, Pharaoh 
will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. He recognized the reality. Of course, here is one thing that uh, personally I, I I just believe that there's no way that you mature apart from being constantly fed the word of God. Constantly. Now, just not hearing about it, living it. It's we all we all walking through. In other words, what you knew yesterday, what you knew a year ago, better not be what you know now as a believer. Otherwise, there's no progress in your spiritual life. In every way, not just by what you hear, but the way you live. Now, Joseph did not suddenly understand everything God was doing in his life. Because when he gets to the 45th chapter, he now tells his brother, God sent me here. He didn't think about it at this point. He hasn't learned that. It's a process. He goes on and goes on and goes on and goes on. So we all go through process of learning in our spiritual life. So if you don't learn, you're not going anywhere. Get stuck. Anyway, so Joseph requests here to be mentioned to Pharaoh was an expression of his faith though in the Lord to do something for him. You see, if he did not trust in the Lord, his request to be released from prison would have no basis since there's no human reason for Pharaoh to intervene to rescue a slave in prison. Think about it. A slave in prison. What would the, what would the king of a big nation think about a slave in prison? Why? So that's what I'm saying. He had the trust. He had that faith. God is going to do something for me. Sure, he was Complaining in a way, I didn't do anything. That's it being an honest evaluation. He wasn't disillusioned. That's my saying. You can be disillusioned. That's different from expressing an honest evaluation of what you're going through. He was doing an honest evaluation. He didn't lose his faith. Otherwise, he couldn't be saying, get me out of here. Tell him, remember me. In his mind, he was convinced that the God who he saw will do something. But he will do it through fair. Anyway, anyhow, so Joseph expressed an honest belief then of what his suffering was not, but because he was not disillusioned, he was hopeful that he will someday be released from prison. Now the point is that we should distinguish them between being disillusioned due to suffering from expressing an honest opinion of what one sees as suffering without a perceptible reason for it. In other words, you can easily 
making sense out of what you're suffering. Yes, you know, I know many of us would like to just, oh yeah, dismiss your suffering and blame it on something. No, I'm talking about when you have done an honest evaluation of your life. You're truthful to yourself. Now, because there's no human being can really do that for you. Really. Because no one else knows you. You know yourself. Well, some of us, we may see each other, what we do on our side, but I don't know what you think. You don't know what I'm thinking. But the one, you, you know what you think. You know how you function. So you are the only one that can honestly evaluate yourself to see what you're thinking and relate what you're thinking to what the suffering is and see if there's a connection between that or not. Anyway, those who become disillusioned because of suffering are those who are not thinking that they are those who are thinking, though, that serving God is not worth it if doing so leads to suffering. That's a person who is disillusioned. Who say, well, okay, what's the point of all this? I spend my time, come to Bible study, I go home, I study. I apply everything that I learn. I strive to do everything. Yet, why am I suffering? Maybe, oh, it's no good then. That would be the wrong way. That's what we say. That's the wrong attitude. See, a person with that kind of mindset, though, would be similar to those prophets Malachi charged of saying that it is useless to serve the Lord as if they had to suffer. According to Malachi, chapter 3, verse 14. Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 14. It is Malachi chapter 3, verse 14 reads, You have said it is futile to serve God. In other words, what's the use? What's the purpose? If I hold this, I'm going through, I do everything, and yet I'm suffering. He said, Why did we, What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? In other words, they say, if I do, we did not what we're supposed to do here, we're suffering. What's the point then? And I'm saying that's a wrong approach to suffering. So anyway, it is important then to recognize that a wrong response to suffering is to become disillusioned and to speak evil or evil words against God in the midst of suffering or to show resentment towards God because of one's suffering. So we have considered the wrong response of suffering then uh, to suffering. So we turn our attention to the right response to suffering. A right response to suffering is to reverentially submit to God in your suffering. Recognizing that he is in control of all things and that whatever suffering you undergo 
is for a purpose in his plan. Again, let me repeat that. That your first right response is to reverentially submit to God in your suffering, recognizing that he is in control of all things. And that whatever suffering you undergo is for a purpose in his plan. Now this reverential submission to God in the face of suffering was established or was exhibited though by Job at the beginning of his suffering. He, his reverential submission to God is conveyed in Job chapter 1 verse 21. Job chapter 1 verse 21. Job chapter 1 verse 21. It is and said naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I would depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So, it may not seem like uh, what Job said in this verse is reverential submission to the Lord if we forget that the preceding verse speaks of Job's, uh, Job's worship of God as, look at verse 20, the verse before, verse 20 reads, At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship. Now see, the sentence he fell to the ground in worship is more literally from the Hebrew. He fell on the ground and bowed down. Now bowing down before someone, especially among the ancient Semitic people, was an act of reverence or honoring of someone as it was used to describe uh, the reverence shown to David by Mephibosheth, uh, the son of Jonathan, as we read in Second Samuel chapter nine, verse six. Second Samuel chapter nine, verse six. Again, Second Samuel, chapter nine, verse six. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant. He replied. So then. When it is said that Job bowed down, it is to be understood as an expression of reverence to the Lord that he addressed. So his reverential submission to the Lord is evident in his acknowledgement of the fact that nothing belongs to him since he was born with nothing in the sense that he did not bring anything into the world and would die with nothing in the sense of not taking anything out of this world. 
And furthermore, he acknowledged that God, that it is God's prerogative to do whatever he wants with his resources. Thus, he resigned himself to the fact that God is sovereignly in control of all things and so has a right to do whatever he wanted. Now, this is what reverential submission from a human being looks like. In other words, if you reverentially submit to God in your suffering, you will not question him or complain against him for the suffering that you undergo. Now, it is not only Job that reverentially submitted to God in the face of suffering. So did the Lord Jesus in his, in his humanity as a, as a human author of Hebrew Pesos in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 8 reads, During the days of Jesus, I mean, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was hard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So Jesus' reverent submission to God the Father is that he willingly accepted the suffering of death on the cross in keeping with the Father's will in order to provide our eternal salvation. Now the Lord... Jesus did not question the Father regarding his suffering. He accepted it because that was part of the package of him being our Redeemer. Hence, a proper response to suffering is to submit to it in a reverential manner, recognizing that God knows exactly what he's doing even in the midst of our suffering, that we may never understand is reason. So that brings us to another right response. And that's what we take after break. <laughs> 